Well, good morning. Please be seated. And I uh, invite you to turn to Genesis 4 as we continue our series called No Future Without Forgiveness. I gave some important caveats and framings last week when I preached from Genesis 3 about forgiveness and the traps we can fall into. And I encourage you to go back and listen to that if you, if you didn't hear it last week. The most dangerous road in the world is also one of the most alluring. The Carretera de las Yungas, otherwise known as Death Road, is a 43-mile path made of loose stones, gravel, and slick mud that snakes its way through the jungle-clad mountains of Bolivia. The road is about 10 feet wide, and there's no guard, and it's two-way. It's 10 feet wide, and there are no guardrails keeping drivers or cyclists from slipping on the muddy rocks 3,000 feet to their death into the canyon. Death Road is lined, actually. As you go along Death Road, it's lined with crosses marking all of the place where the cyclists, cars, and even busfuls of people fell off the edge. And yet the notoriety of Death Road entices tens of thousands of tourists, believe it or not. People are actually drawn to the thrill and the power and the danger of this 43-mile stretch. In fact, there's a whole cottage industry that has cropped up around death row tourism, um, complete with tour guides and rental equipment and probably waivers to sign. Some of you are already thinking about traveling to Bolivia right now. Now, if there was a death road for the soul, it would be called revenge. Revenge Road is thrilling. It draws people from all over the world to travel its muddy, slippery, perilous path. And so many have died on Revenge Road, if not physically, certainly spiritually. Busfuls of families and societies have actually plunged into despair and darkness by traveling Revenge Road. Yet it's so alluring, so appealing, that an entire cottage industry has mushroomed in recent times, capitalizing on people's grievances and anger. So today we're going to be tracing the path of someone who followed down Revenge Road. His name was Cain. He was the first person to climb its heights and fall to its depths. And I really want all of us to get familiar with the contours of Revenge Road. And, and I want us to see also not just the dangers, but also the opportunities for turnaround. Because there's all of these opportunities of grace for Cain to turn around and get off the road. And I want us to, to turn around where he didn't. Because we need those interruptions of grace to keep us from plunging to our depths as we go down this dangerous road. Let's look at the first um, leg of Revenge Road, which is bitter rivalry. Bitter rivalry. Um, rivalry is whenever you want the same thing as someone else. Have you ever wanted the same thing as someone else? We have some kids here today. Hey, kids, do you have someone in your life that you want the same thing as them? Who is it the most often? It's your, I mean, for when I was growing up, it was my siblings and my friends 
that I had the most rivalry with and that I was the most angry with most of the time. And as we're going to see, this is not a new problem, kids and adults alike. Let's look at um, Genesis 4, verse, verse 1 and following. Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. You know, sometimes we get into rivalries like Cain and Abel with people who are most like us. Cain and Abel had so much in common. They were born to the same parents. They were about the same age. They bore the same image of God. And they both worshiped the Lord by bringing a tangible offering of their hard-earned labor And they both want something from God, which is they both want the Lord to approve of them and approve of their worship. Cain brings an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. And it makes sense because he's a gardener. He works with crops and he works with orchards. And so he's got fruit that he's been growing and he brings some of that fruit to the Lord. That's his stock and trade. Abel's his younger brother. Abel is a shepherd. He works with sheep, feeds them, watches over them. And Abel brings an offering of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. The the firstborn and their fat portions. That's the tastiest part of the sheep. And this is a real sacrifice. Abel brings the firstborn, likely the plumpest, fluffiest, healthiest and most valuable and costly of all of his flock. He takes the firstborn, he slaughters it, and he gives the Lord the fat portions. So the the creme de la creme of what he has been raising and working for, he actually trusts God enough to give it to him as an offering of worship. Now the Lord evaluates both offerings, the fat portions of the sheep and the collection of fruits and vegetables from Cain. And he weighs them in the balance, and he weighs the worshipers in the balance as well. He weighs Cain, and he weighs Abel, their hearts. You know, we look on the outward appearance. That's all we can do sometimes. God can see everything. He sees their hearts, and he sees their hearts as expressed in the tangible offering they bring or don't bring. What did you give me? Why did you give it in the first place? Did you bring it with gratitude and faith that I'm going to provide for you? Or did you give it begrudgingly because you had to with a miserly heart? Do you love me with this gift? Do you trust me with this gift that I'm going to take care of you? Or do you resent me for this gift that you had to give? So verse 4 and 5 say that the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. So he looked on it and said, I approve of it. I received it. This is acceptable to me in my holy presence. We have communion, Abel. But for Cain and his offering, the Lord said, on its face, 
this is unacceptable to me. And so Cain was very angry with that result. And his face fell. And now we can see what the Lord saw all along. That when Cain didn't get what he wanted, he got angry. And who did he get angry at? That's an interesting question. Maybe the Lord, probably. But who did he take it out on? He took that anger out on his brother who got what he wanted. Uh, James was a pastor in the early church, and he asked a few questions of some people that he was concerned about. He, in a letter, he wrote this, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war with you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. Isn't that interesting? You desire, you want something, you don't get it, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Bitter rivalries are at the heart of so much revenge. Um, And especially bitter rivalries for scarce resources. And maybe you've seen this happen. A friend group unites around a common academic interest or sports interest, but then divides over a common romantic interest. Isn't that interesting how that happens? What about two entrepreneurs? They encourage one another and share ideas, best practices, until one of them experiences rapid growth in their business and makes the cover of of Crane's Chicago. And then the one that didn't cuts him off, hurts too much. What about siblings? They're close when they're growing up, but then they grow distant as adults as their mother expresses more love and approval towards one of the siblings. Our face falls. We quarrel. We grow angry. And we go down further down Revenge Road. But notice how God's grace interrupts very early Cain's journey uh, down Revenge Road. Verses 6 and 7 are like a well-timed turnaround opportunity for Cain. Have you ever seen those on narrow roads? There's this little, uh, like, divot on the side of the road. You can move your car. You can almost like do a 180 and go back down. And so the Lord is providing a little turnaround opportunity for Cain to stop going down the dangerous path that he's on. Verses 6 and 7 say this. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. It wants to rule you, but you must rule it. Now consider this. The Lord did not accept Cain's offering, but he wasn't done with Cain. If he was done with Cain, he wouldn't be having this spiritual direction conversation with Cain, interrupting his, path, interrupting his path down Revenge Road. He even notices Cain's emotions and his body language. Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? It, it, can you hear the compassionate curiosity from God about what Cain's going through? And then he says, if you do well, Will you not be accepted? God wants Cain to get to the point where he can bring an acceptable offering to the Lord. There's enough blessing for Cain and Abel. It's actually not a scarce resource. So the Lord wants to teach Cain how to make an acceptable 
sacrifice with a joyful heart, and to stop competing with his brother for God's approval and to start loving his brother. That would be something God could approve of. How good it would have been for Cain to pull aside right here and to take a breath and just be like, okay, what am I even doing right now? Look out the window, see the 3,000 foot drop, see that it's only getting more dangerous, more muddy, and be like, you know what? (laughs) I've been going down the wrong path. I need to climb off this path, climb down this ladder of rivalry that I'm climbing up, turn around, drive back down. It would have been good for him. I actually know of someone who did this, um, a, a very competitive man, right at this point in his life, turned around. He was very competitive uh, and succeeded in two different arenas. One was in academia. He was a philosophy professor. The other one was interesting. He had a whole different career as a Christian author and speaker. So you may know him. His name's Dallas Willard. He wrote the book Divine Conspiracy. Um, early on in his career, um, he actually beat out his rivals. Um, and he did that by workaholism, basically. He, he worked really, really hard and, and got very far. But then as the Lord got a hold of his rivalry, he did a turnaround. And he began to practice something to keep his rivalry in check. Whenever he would speak and whenever he would write, he actually had this prayer. When he spoke at a conference, he would pray, Lord, let the other speakers be more successful than me at this conference. Let the other speakers have more connection with the audience. Let them have, let them have more interest. Let there be more buzz around them. Let me be more hidden than them. The other prayer he would pray is when he would release a book, he would pray for his colleagues and he would say, Lord, let other people who who are releasing books right now have more success than mine. Let them sell more copies. Let them have more notoriety. Let them do better than me. And what that did is that posture actually uh, gave him freedom of soul. And so that he was just able to offer his offering like Abel did and not be worried about rivalry in comparison. Now, that freedom is available to any of us. That turnaround is available for any of us. Dallas Willard took the turnaround. Unfortunately, Cain did not. And he went down the second leg of Revenge Road, which is violence. Violence. Verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Now, it's interesting that God spoke to Cain, but did Cain speak back to God? He actually didn't. Like, he didn't take, you know, the Psalms weren't available at the time, but he could have, as his later brother would do, Seth, call on the name of the Lord. He didn't call on the name of the Lord. He took his angry words, instead of taking them into the presence of God, God can handle our angry words, but he took them to his brother, And Cain didn't actually confront his own anger as God encouraged him to do. It's like, hey, you know, sin wants to master you. You need to master it first. You need to work on your blind spots, brother. He didn't. He took his anger to his brother. And uh, he confronted his own brother instead of confronting his own pride. He He killed his own brother instead of killing his own anger. Sin crouched. In Cain's life, sin pounced. Cain is guilty and Abel is dead. Cain got revenge, but it's probably better to say that revenge got Cain. 
Cain was unwilling, actually. You notice, he was unwilling to make a real sacrifice to God in worship, but he was all too eager to sacrifice his brother on the altar of his anger. That's the sacrifice he was willing to make. I've said this before in in different sermons. It's worth repeating. All anger feels righteous if you're the one who's angry, okay? And all anger feels unrighteous if you're on the receiving end of the anger. It feels unbridled. It feels violent. Take road rage, for instance. When you have road rage, there's probably a good reason, isn't there? You were cut off. You were insulted. You were endangered. The other driver deserves to be honked at or maybe followed at a close distance. How else are they going to learn? I mean, they need you to teach them a lesson, right? The road rage, when you have it, feels righteous. But what does road rage feel like when you're on the receiving end of it? It doesn't feel righteous. It feels kind of chaotic. It feels out of the blue. It feels scary and violent. Sometimes it does end in injury or death. Do you know that um, the American Automobile Association measured road rage for seven years, and they found that road rage led to 200 murders and 12,000 injuries just from road rage. But when you have it, it feels so righteous. Violence happens when we let anger drive the car. Violence happens when we let anger drive the keyboard or the tongue or the fists or the knife. At this point on Revenge Road, Kane's not driving anymore. Anger is driving, pedal to the metal, running over Kane's brother. Yet we see that the Lord is going to interrupt Yet again, there is another turnaround opportunity for Cain in verse 9 and following. Another turnaround opportunity. Verse 9, then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? Can you hear the curiosity? It's the same that he did with, uh, the Lord did with Adam and Eve. Where are you? Where's Cain your brother? God seeks the truth always, always, always he seeks the truth. The soul can't heal and the world can't heal without the truth being spoken out loud. And you've got to be able to confess and put into words what you've done in order for there to be real healing of the soul. And so God's giving Cain an opportunity to confess. Instead, like his parents, he deflects and evades the truth. Cain said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? He's hiding from reality. He's hiding from responsibility. But the Lord is not going to relent. He actually lays out Cain's reality as plainly as he can, the the consequences for his murder. Um, This is going to be good for him to actually know the truth, even if he doesn't want to hear it. Verse 10, and the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Verse 11, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. What is God saying to Cain? He's saying, Cain, you have spoiled the fields that I gave to you to work. You have spoiled your family. You have mingled them in an unholy way. Your brother's blood and the ground you were called to work 
and now it's cursed. And now your life is going to carry a consequence. Like Cain, we think that by sacrificing a human life, by making someone pay, by inflicting pain on the guilty party, we will be healed. We think our healing will come from someone else's pain and destruction. But the opposite is true. And God's laying that out for Cain. We've got to see this now in our day. The more we engage in violence, whatever form it takes, even in nice middle-class forms of one-star reviews and lawsuits and little suggestions and rumors, even in the nice ways that we do it and cover our tracks, the more we engage in violence, the more violent our lives become as a result. Now, at this point, okay, Cain could have taken the turnaround, done a 180, and gone back the other way. He could have cried out to God for mercy. The mercy was available to him. He could have said, God, would you take anger out of the driver's seat? I don't even know how I got here, but anger's in the driver's seat. And the Lord would have said, yes, I will do that for you. Yes, I'll take anger out of the driver's seat. Cain, you get back in the driver's seat as I've always intended for it, and you can actually drive back down the road. But, but Cain doesn't do that. He goes even further down the road of revenge because, believe it or not, there's more to revenge than violence. Did you know this? There's more to revenge than violence. He goes down the third leg of the road of revenge, which is despair. Despair. Verse 13, Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Now, can you hear the despair in Cain's response? Can you hear Cain kind of giving up on life? God is making me leave, and I will die, and nothing matters anymore. Um, Some of you know about uh, the Troubles in Northern Ireland, which was a 30-year period of great violence in this um, small country uh, between uh, Irish nationalists who wanted independence, often referred to as the Protestants, and, uh, or sorry, uh, often referred to as the Catholics, and Unionists who supported British rule, often referred to as the Protestants. It wasn't actually a religious war, but that's the shorthand version. People refer to it as a Protestant-Catholic war, but it was really a political war. And it was a war of revenge. There was so much blood shed through bullets and bombs and beatings over and over again from the late 60s through the late 90s. You may have heard the Cranberry song, Zombie. It's all about the troubles. Historians noted that with the violence, with the bombs and the blood and the death, came a steep rise in despair in this country. As violence rose, guess what else rose? Alcohol abuse, teenage pregnancies, homelessness, unemployment, divorces, antisocial behavior, and political division. All that went up. For instance, and this is so sad, in the 1970s, there were 10,000 vandalized empty houses in Belfast alone. Just think about 10,000 empty vandalized houses. And guess what? Most of the vandals were aged between 8 and 13. (sighs) Just imagine those kids. They had nothing to live for except vandalizing empty houses. But guess what went down 
uh, participation in society, organizations that do good, like churches and volunteer efforts and neighborhood associations and marriages. All that plummeted. All that went down. People, their hearts and souls were broken by the violence. And when you lose hope, when there's that black hole in your soul, what's the only thing that gets you up in the morning? More violence, more reprisals, getting even. Yet, grace interrupts again. Cain is starting to despair, and you can just see it. If nothing matters to him, he's going to go kill more people. But there's another turnaround opportunity for Cain and for us. Verse 15, then the Lord said to Cain, not so, not so, Cain. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. I just appreciate the Lord's not so to Cain's despair. Don't think that way, Cain. Don't give up. Uh, All hope is not lost. I actually, in my grace, will place upon you a permanent mark. It will be a mark of grace, actually, that will protect you from the violence that you inflicted on your brother. And so Cain went. Cain got the mark, and he went his way, and he lived his life. He got married. He had kids. He built a city. He had grandkids, and on and on. But if we keep reading Genesis 4, we find something that should cause our spines to shiver. Because seven generations down the line after Cain, Cain's descendants are still going down Revenge Road. (laughs) Verse 23, we skip down there. Lamech said to his wives, this is Cain's great-grandson seven generations down. Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. Isn't it great when there's a man singing to his wives about himself? Um, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's revenge is 77-fold. Wasn't that interesting after our gospel reading today about a 77-fold forgiveness? Here's a 77-fold revenge, like uh, exponential revenge. And I think this is probably the most tragic and final section of Revenge Road. It's where Revenge Road leads, and that is repeat, repeat. The Carretera de las Yungas, Death Road, guess what? It's only 42 miles. But Revenge Road, boy, that never ends. Once you're dead, everyone who around you, carries your grievances on your behalf, are going to keep going down that road and just circle it until they die, and then on and on, and then on and on, and then on and on. Lamech is seven generations in, and he's even more vengeful than Cain. He kills people who insult him. He is so petty. He is so violent, and he's bragging about it. He's writing poems about it and singing to his two wives about it. He's still talking about his great-grandfather's revenge seven generations back. How many of us know or discuss even our great-grandparents, let alone the ones seven generations back? Listen, nothing will link you to the past more powerfully like a generational grudge. Miroslav Volv, who lived through incredible violence in his home country, said this, wrongs done and suffered 
binds us to the past. Forgiveness makes a new beginning possible. Isn't that beautiful? Forgiveness does make that new beginning possible. And I love what Archbishop Desmond Tutu said from South Africa, there is no future without forgiveness. So we titled this series. Now, in the midst of the troubles in Northern Ireland, there was a man named Gordon Wilson who suffered a great wrong. He was with his 20-year-old daughter, and they were attending a memorial service for people who served in the British military. This memorial service happened to be taking place in Northern Ireland. And what they didn't know is that the Irish Republican Army had actually planted a bomb that was designed to go off in the midst of the crowd during the memorial service. And just hours after the bombing, believe it or not, here's what Gordon Wilson told the BBC. We, he and his daughter, were both thrown forward, rubble and stones and whatever in all around and over us and under us. I was aware of a pain in my right shoulder. I shouted to Marie, this is his daughter, was she all right? And she said, yes. And she found my hand and she said, is that your hand, dad? Now remember, we were under six feet of rubble. I said, are you all right? And she said, yes. But she was shouting in between. Three or four times I asked her, are you all right? And she always said, yes, she was all right. When I asked her for the fifth time, are you all right, Marie? She said, daddy, I love you so much. Those were the last words she spoke to me. She still held my right hand quite firmly, and I kept shouting at her, Marie, are you all right? But there wasn't a reply. We were there about five minutes. Someone came and pulled me out. I said, I'm all right, but for God's sakes, my daughter is lying right beside me. And later she died. He says this, I miss my daughter, and we shall miss her. I bear no ill will. I, hold no gr- I bear no grudge. She was a great wee lassie. She loved her profession. She's in heaven, and we will meet again. Now, now, listen closely to Gordon's refusal to despair when he says this. Please don't ask me for a purpose. I don't have a purpose. I don't have an answer. But I know there has to be a plan. And God is good, and we shall meet again. I have lost my daughter, and we shall miss her. But I bear no ill will. I bear no grudge. Dirty sort of talk is not going to bring her back to life. I shall pray for these people, the bombers, tonight. And I shall pray for them every night. May God forgive them. What tender words. What hopeful words. I bear no ill will. I bear no grudge. Historian Jonathan Barden recounts this. No words in more than 25 years of violence in Northern Ireland had such a powerful emotional impact. I bear no ill will. I bear no grudge. Those words circulated around Northern Ireland and marked a turning point for the troubles. And it was a chance for everyone on Revenge Road in that country, Catholic or Protestant, to turn around. Now, Death Road in Bolivia is lined with crosses, reminding the travelers of the blood that has already been shed on that road. And each cross is a sign to the travelers, you should probably turn around right now. But on Revenge Road, no matter how far we've 
gone down it, there is one cross that you can see wherever you're at on that road, and it's this cross, the cross of Jesus Christ, the blood already shed for sins committed. It's a turnaround sign, a chance to do a 180 and get off revenge road. Jesus Christ went to the cross saying this, forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they're doing. And he shed his blood to forgive all evil, Cain's evil, our evil, all sins done by us or against us. And he actually, by dying and rising to life, gave us great power to forgive, great power to release grudges and ill will towards other people. He actually comes with great power through his Holy Spirit to release generational grudges this morning, from release all of us from cycles of revenge this morning, to release the power of anger, to get anger out of the driver's seat this morning. He rose to give life for you and me in place of despair. Are you stuck in in rivalry, bitter rivalry? Has someone taken something that you wanted for yourself? Are you angry at them? Do you resent them for it? Look at the cross. Jesus Christ came uh, to set us free from rivalry and actually to let us serve and love those that we are locked in a battle with. What about violence? Are you in a place where violence feels so right to you, where you are unleashing on someone else or about to unleash on someone else? Please, please see the turnaround sign. It's right here. The cross of Jesus is the turnaround sign. Don't do it. Cry out to the Lord. Call upon his name and ask him for power to turn around. Um, what about um, despair? Are there any, is there anybody here in despair? Is there any part of you that says nothing matters anymore? I really don't have hope anymore. Is there a black hole forming in your soul? Please, please look at the cross. Please look at the cross. It's a turnaround moment for you. Because the cross is not just about a death of the Son of God. It's also about his life and his victory. It's about his new city that's being formed that has a place for you. There's a place for you in his city. And the way to that city is through this cross. Don't despair. But what about repeat? Are you carrying grievances on behalf of someone else? Do you know how dangerous that is? That might be the most dangerous thing of all, for you to carry a grievance, to carry anger on behalf of someone else. You weren't made to do that. I wasn't made to do that either. Be free of this grievance that's been handed to you. You don't have to carry it. You shouldn't carry it. It's not good for you, and it's not going to get justice. Justice is important. The truth is important. But bearing someone else's grievances is very dangerous and very bad for all of us. Look at the cross. Bring that grievance to Jesus Christ because he ends generational cycles of grievances and grudges, and he can get you off the repeat track. He can keep you from being linked to the past in an unholy and heavy way. He can release not only you, but your family, and by releasing you and your family, that's going to have a neighborhood on your, uh, on your, uh, an impact on your neighborhood, an impact on your workplace, an impact on every life you touch. You know what I'm so concerned about right now? I am so concerned for our country because so many people are going, you know what? I think Revenge Road is the way to go. 
people want to go down revenge road. They think it's the way to get justice. On the left, on the right, it's becoming more appealing. It's drawing more people. In fact, some people are calling it righteous road. If you care about what's righteous, you'll go down revenge road. But it's only going to lead to repeat. It's only going to end in dead ends. And it is so important. We can't control that, but we, we actually, as the people of God, can repent of any root of bitterness that we are carrying right now. And we can be that sign of the kingdom to come. There is a kingdom where people call upon the name of the Lord, a kingdom of people who are free, they're forgiven, and they forgive, and they're released, and there is hope in this place because there is hope through Jesus Christ. Would you be that people in our day? In a day when revenge is growing with popularity, would you, would, what if we were to become a forgiving people who were set free from grudges and cycles of revenge? May the Lord give us his freedom. May he bring us the same turnaround opportunity that he gave Cain. I invite you now just to take a moment to pray and bring to the Lord anything that you have that you want to bring to his cross. Let this moment, let these few moments be a turnaround opportunity for all of us.